You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a message from Cyberbit. Mastering cybersecurity is like mastering a sport. You build muscle memory through rigorous practice. Then you train as a team to foster cohesion while operating under pressure. Like athletes, cybersecurity professionals thrive on hands-on simulation. But traditional courses, certifications, and open-source labs won't build you a winning team. You need Cyberbit. Cyberbit offers a hyper-realistic simulation environment for your SOC, IR, and C-suite to refine your skills. All using the market-leading SIMs, EDRs, firewalls, and WAFs they use every day. Cyberbit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com slash cyberwire. provides cyber assistance to Ukraine, the cicada call of Stone Panda, phony e-commerce sites seek to harvest banking credentials, CISA offers some advice and some guidance, the Hydra market's been sanctioned, a Weiss Rashid from Bristol University on anonymous communication systems, our guest is Armand Mabad of DTEC Systems with a look at super malicious insiders, and the most popular password is... From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Wednesday, April 6th, 2022. Russian cyber operations in Moscow's war against Ukraine haven't developed in the expected directions. Those expected directions included crippling attacks against Ukrainian infrastructure, attacks against countries sympathetic to Ukraine, and widespread damaging attacks that would spread globally and indiscriminately, like WannaCry and NotPetya did in May and June of 2017. But of course, Russian cyber operations have taken place at lower levels, especially in the form of nuisance-level distributed denial-of-service attacks and attempts to push disinformation through accessible channels. An essay in Foreign Affairs argues that, in fact, Russian cyber operations were both extensive and successful, and that it would be naive to underestimate them simply because they didn't unfold as expected. Extensive seems correct, but successful is less clear— It may be that the cyber operation's success was lost in the general noise of Russian tactical ineptitude. The authors maintain that Russian cyber operators performed as planned and that the failure was a general strategic one. In addition to the DDoS attacks, the foreign affairs piece mentions the wiper attack against Viasat customers. There has also been Russian interference with GPS— Simple Flying reports that France's Civil Aviation Authority has attributed interference with GPS signals near Finland to Russian jamming. That jamming has been ongoing since early last month and is probably intended as a hedge against attacks against Russian forces by precision-guided weapons. 
And of course, there have also been cyber attacks against Ukrainian telecommunications infrastructure, notably the March 28th attack on Irk Telecom. The Wall Street Journal reports that both Microsoft and Cisco have been helping Ukrainian telcos with remediation. But this doesn't change the fact that Western expectations of the damage Russian cyber attacks would produce were inflated. And it also seems inarguable that Ukrainian networks have proven more resilient than expected and that Ukraine has probably received more foreign assistance than Moscow anticipated. General Paul M. Nakasone, commander, U.S. Cyber Command, yesterday delivered his organization's posture statement to the 117th Congress. Prominent among the threats and responses he outlined were those presented by Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Russia, in Cyber Command's estimation, is using a broad range of its capabilities against Ukraine. Nakasone said, Russia's invasion of Ukraine demonstrated Moscow's determination to violate Ukraine's sovereignty and territorial integrity, forcibly impose its will on its neighbors, and challenge the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. Russia's military and intelligence forces are employing a range of cyber capabilities to include espionage, influence and attack units, to support its invasion and to defend Russian actions with a worldwide propaganda campaign. General Nakasone also described the response by Cyber Command and the NSA to the invasion. That response extends to readiness and intelligence services to the U.S. and its allies, but also to direct support of Ukraine. That support included assistance with network hardening and threat hunting. Researchers at Symantec have found renewed cyber espionage on the part of the Chinese APT it calls Cicada, also known as APT-10 or Stone Panda. Among the victims are government, legal, religious, and non-governmental organizations in multiple countries around the world, including Europe, Asia, and North America. Symantec thinks the expansion of the APT's interests are significant. It had formerly been most concerned with Japanese companies. Symantec says this campaign does appear to indicate a further widening of Cicada's targeting. The attribution is based on finding a custom loader and custom malware believed to be used only by Stone Panda. ESET reports finding seven bogus e-commerce websites that impersonate legitimate Malaysian businesses, six of them cleaning services, the seventh a pet store. The sites dangle the offer of an app as opposed to an opportunity to make immediate purchases. The criminal's aim is to harvest banking credentials. For now, at least, the problem is confined to Malaysia, but users anywhere should be alert to the possibility of this kind of scam. CISA yesterday issued four industrial control system advisories. They also added four vulnerabilities to their known exploited vulnerabilities catalog, U.S. federal civilian agencies that CISA oversees have until April 25th to address them, so hop to it, CISOs. Following the takedown of the Hydra market by German federal police this week, the U.S. Treasury Department's Office of Foreign Assets Control has sanctioned the Russian-language Hydra market and has identified over 100 virtual currency addresses associated with the criminal operation, Contraband traded in Hydramarket include ransomware as a service, hacking services and software, stolen personal information, counterfeit currency, stolen virtual currency, and illicit drugs. Treasury pointedly notes that Russia is a haven for cyber criminals. 
Decipher reports that experts think data seized from Hydra's market servers will inform further investigations into the cyber underworld. And finally, here's a proverbial dog bites man story. What do you think is the most common password nowadays? Wait for it. According to a cyber news study, 123456 is apparently still the world's most common password. But you saw that one coming, didn't you? Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. It makes all your identity tooling stronger and allows you to connect any app to any service you want to use. With zero coding, zero maintenance, and zero app downtime. Strata's identity orchestration platform separates the identity logic from your applications, so you can optimize existing IAM tools and manage them in a single control plane. Now, every vendor, standard, and architecture work together. In short, building your identity fabric means you can secure your non-standard apps, keep your complex access policies, retire outdated IDPs, and modernize in record time. So build your fabric with Strata Identity and get rid of tech debt for good. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity priorities, and receive a pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. And now a word from our sponsor, Netscope. Netscope is a worldwide leader in SASE and Zero Trust. Its unified platform, Netscope One, provides optimized access and Zero Trust security for people, devices, and data anywhere they go, helping customers reduce risk, accelerate performance, and get unrivaled visibility into any cloud, web, and private application activity. To learn more about how Netscope helps customers be ready for anything on their SASE journey, visit netskope.com. DTEX Systems is a workforce cyber intelligence and security company, and they recently released their 2022 Insider Risk Report. One element the report highlights is what they describe as the rise of the super-malicious insider. Arman Mabad is Director of Security and Business Intelligence at DTEX Systems. Compared to a normal malicious individual, this super-malicious person is more technical, understands the risks and concerns that are out there that businesses are already looking for, and essentially are the type of individual to know those risks, know how to kind of get behind or past those risks, and, and essentially seem to be more normal than others, right? They understand the TTPs that are out there and all those behaviors. So their goal and intent is to essentially, hey, I know that this is already looking for that. Um, you know, I'm going to take these measures, these other steps to essentially bypass those things and not go detected as much as possible. And so what should the security people be on the lookout for? I think it's a range of behaviors, right? There's a lot more with the super malicious. What we've noticed is although they may try to use social engineering tactics and do, do um, you know, things to, to essentially push work onto others, in many cases, they 
other people are still not convincible or able to be convinced that they should exfiltrate that data, right? So I may have access, for example, to, to data and I may be, may be very knowledgeable on what is actually worth something and what is not. So maybe you would contact me and try to make friends with me in the business, try to perform a little social engineering to get me to provide you some data. Maybe you're trying to get a leg up in your business or your department, right? Um, and you're like, hey, maybe this is a mutual benefit for both of us, right? Those are some incidents that we've seen over the past years where essentially they'll, they'll still have to identify others, still communicate with others, but they'll try to skip the reconnaissance and utilize social engineering as their way to circumvent, right? To bypass and not seem to the blame to be on them for taking this data or aggregating it, but they still generally need to exfiltrate that. So what we've seen is a high spike in burner emails, instant messaging tools, other things of that nature. Even actually the tools that organizations provide are actually a very, very uh, hot topic because things like Slack, things like Zoom, communication tools, have a lot more features in them, but also what those features entail is less, less visibility for an organization. And what I mean by that is, for example, what we've seen is a higher rise in Slack and communication tool usage, obviously with remote working occurring, but what actually is a slight byproduct of that is people are more comfortable sharing documents through these, through these methodologies as well. And it's really simple now where, you know, hey, I can send a Slack message to myself and actually go on my phone and download that file, right? Then I can clean the stores. And I think it's really important to, for organizations to be more aware and cognizant of those means. Are we looking for behaviors? Is that where we're focused here? Or, or is this a matter of putting specific filters in place? Or is it a combination of all those things? No, that's a great question. You know, what, what we have is we have very compliance-driven organizations and very innovative and a mix of the two. And, and especially in the innovative space, they feel as though these, these lockdown measures can be a hindrance to the business, right? So I think it's, a, it's always a mix of both, depending on the appetite of the business. But what we see is that there should be at least a level of understanding and monitoring still of what's being shared. And maybe, maybe at least consideration, to your point, tweaking the, 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 the thresholds, right? How much can you actually send through this, this means, right? Um, I think that's really important. I suppose also that the tone that you have matters a lot as well. I mean, it's, you know, to go and slap someone on the wrist is is different than saying, hey, we noticed that you're using Dropbox here. Uh, is, you know, is there something that you need to, are there capabilities you need to get your work done that we're not providing you with? You know, we, we want to help you uh, stay on the straight and narrow here. Yeah, no, you're, you're right. Business is a spectrum, right? There's a, there's a varying degree of compliance and regulation and corporate policy and all of that kind of stuff in place. And also, you know, your people, every, you know, as humans, we all have different emotions. We all react differently. And usually it's good to let the manager in on it and have them take on this level of human aspect that, that we don't want to lose because 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 we want to make sure the relationship between security folk and employees is not just virtual, right? It's a human thing. We, we are here. We're here to help you make sure that you have the tools in place to be more successful. If you're going to use Dropbox, oh, you know, we actually have this other service and you can utilize it in this way. 
If you're doing it for personal means, then obviously we would look at the corporate policy and if that aligns with the business practices that we have today. You know, and, and thinking about it in that way, it's making it more, instead of it generic, making it a little bit more authentic and one-to-one -one is, is what we've seen done, you know, wonders for organizations. That's Arman Mabad from DTEX Systems. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. Visit vanta.com slash cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber. And joining me once again is Professor Awais Rashid. He's the director of the National Research Center on Privacy, Harm Reduction, and Adversarial Influence Online at the University of Bristol. Awais, it's always great to have you back. Um, I wanted to touch base with you today on this whole notion of anonymous communication systems um, and, you know, the work that you're doing there at the National Research Center on Privacy, Harm Reduction, and Adversarial Influence falls right into this with everything going on in the world today, it seems as though there's been uh, quite a focus on the ability for people to communicate anonymously. Uh, yes, indeed. And one of one of the things is that, you know, kind of end-to-end -end encryption and anonymous communication systems have been in the news for, uh, for various reasons, you know. And you can um, go from the discussion about, for example, protecting children online, an area in which I have worked uh, myself quite a lot, uh, and uh, potentially the use by criminals in sharing imagery relating to children using potentially anonymous communication and end-to-end -end encryption systems to also the other end, you know, in the case of, for example, geopolitical conflict, you know, where people are able to actually communicate with the outside world in a private and secure fashion because the, they have these tools and applications readily available available to them. And, and that really brings to the front this really interesting point that it's actually not uh, technology itself or the techniques that provide a, a positive or a negative consequence. It's how they are, they are potentially used. But there is also a fundamental question that underpins them. When you are using an end-to-end -end encryption system or you are using an anonymous communication system, how do you really know for sure what kind of properties it is preserving or not? Is it really, really preserving your privacy and under what conditions? And that's really what we are trying to do here. At the moment, we are working on a big effort to build what we call a privacy testbed, where, for example, application developers or potentially users of applications in due course uh, or privacy professionals can run large-scale analyses on these kind of applications without, to, without really having to deploy any specialist infrastructure on their own or having to access several potentially costly devices. This allows you to then simulate effectively information flows on a large scale around these kind of systems and then analyze if they are potentially leaking any uh, privacy-sensitive information. 
You know, you and I have spoken uh, previously about uh, supply chain risk management, and it seems to me like th- that applies to this technology as well. Um, to your point, you know, if I want to use a secure messaging platform, um, how do I know that the claims that they are making are actually so? Is there some sort of chain of custody that can verify that? Absolutely. And and there is a, this is a really interesting case in point that you mentioned, because I also recall in a previous uh, discussion, we also, at the start of the pandemic, we talked about the cybersecurity risks arising from home working and, and things like that. And that, at that point, you might recall, there was a lot of debate in the media about whether Zoom-based communications were end-to-end encrypted or not. And, and it is quite interesting that when, for example, we talk about something being end-to-end encrypted, in this case, we know that the content of the message, depending on the protocol that they're using, uh, w- would not be visible. But there is also, of course, metadata that exists alongside the content of the message, and that metadata may be uh, uh, possibly accessible. And that's why there was a lot of uh, backlash against you know, WhatsApp's, uh, WhatsApp's decision to update their privacy policy that they would be sharing information, for example, with, with Facebook being the, same, being the same parent company. And a lot of users started to migrate to Signal because they were very concerned. But it was also mm. quite interesting that a lot of that migration was from a misconception that their, the content of their message could be read rather than that it's the metadata that was being shared. So, for example, you know, WhatsApp knows to whom you talk at what point, but they don't know the content of the message because they can't read it uh, uh, because they use the signal protocol. And I, it is these kind of things that are hard to establish unless you are an expert. So what we are trying to do is that if you're a software developer and you're implementing such systems, uh, such, uh, such features in your applications, then you can deploy in the testbed to see whether it actually really works as you thought it would. If you are a system administrator, in this case, you know, deploying an end-to-end communication uh, system in, in your organization, then you can test whether it actually preserves the properties it is claiming to preserve. But also, if you're a privacy professional and you want to see whether an application really delivers on its promises with regards to privacy and anonymity, then you can actually also deploy it and test. And again, this goes to the heart of some of the discussions we, uh, again, that were in the media around contact tracing and centralized and decentralized contact tracing and so on. And it would have been wonderful at that time to have a testbed like this. Uh, for us to really test all these things. But, you know, uh, as I say, better late than never. So we are building something now, and it's, it's, it's quite an exciting time. All right. Well, Professor Awais Rashid, thank you for joining us. And that's the CyberWire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. The CyberWire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing CyberWire team is Liz Irvin, Elliot Peltzman, Trey Hester, Brandon Karp, Eliana White, Peru Prakash, Justin Sabi, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow.
And now a word from our sponsor, SpyCloud, the leader in operationalizing cybercrime analytics. Traditional threat intelligence is a thing of the past. Cyber criminals are stealing vast amounts of credentials, session cookies, and financial data every day, and it's hard to keep up. SpyCloud is the trusted partner businesses turn to to fully understand their darknet exposure risk and neutralize threats before it's too late. SpyCloud alerts your organization as soon as an employee or customer's data appears on the dark net, so you can act faster than bad actors to prevent cyber attacks like ransomware, session hijacking, account takeover, and online fraud. With insights from the industry's largest repository of recaptured data, protect the digital identities and systems most important to your business. Get your free corporate darknet exposure report at spycloud.com slash cyberwire and see what information criminals have in their hands today. That's spycloud.com slash cyberwire. Cyberwire. 